from a scale perspective, about 120,000 people, $22 billion in revenue. We do continue to operate as a private partnership. We're actually the largest private partnership in the world. We're speaking with Janet Fauti. She is the executive chair of Deloitte. Janet, you wrote this book. It's called Arrive and Thrive. Do you have a copy of it? Would you hold it up so we can take a look? So here it is. What's the focus of the book and, and why did you write that book? Women leaders for far too long have focused on survival. And we really wanted surviving as a leader to be the floor, not the ceiling. And there's a lot that's been written on how do you get there and how do you survive when you get there? And we wanted to focus on thriving. Over half of the women um, graduating from university in this country um, transition into their into a career in business, less than a quarter of mid-level managers are women. And that number shrinks even further each rung of the corporate ladder. So women get there, but then they turn over. So we absolutely wanted to create the space for women to have honest conversations and practical advice on how not just to get there, but once they're there, how to be successful. So let me talk about the collaboration a little bit, if I could. So the book stems from a long collaboration between Deloitte and Simmons University focused on inclusion and women's advancement. Susan McKenty Brady, who's the CEO of Simmons Inclusive Leadership Institute, and Dr. Lynn Perry Wooten is the president of the university. And I came together. We were a little bit of a um, a little bit of a blind date or an arranged marriage. We did not know each other beforehand. And we came from really different backgrounds. Susan's a leadership coach. Lynn is a very accomplished academic, and I'm the business executive. And the three of us came together and thought about how would we help women think about thriving when we get there? And that's, that is the genesis of the book. We really quickly coalesced around the seven practices that make up the book, despite us coming from very different backgrounds. And the book is really all about not trying to prescribe one path to success or one way to get there but lots of advice from a really diverse group of leaders, all of whom have put their strategies to the test and learned what works well and, and what maybe works less well. So that was that's the heart of how the book came to be and a little bit about what it's about. What are the kinds of skills that you found to be necessary? And maybe you can weave in the, the book themes as well as you describe that. It's funny when I... Think about talking about what are the most important attributes to leading a large organization. It's going to sound really like common sense um, and things that I would guess that 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 our listeners today um, will really resonate with them. And they're they're really fundamental: the ability to listen well, to connect the dots, to build a strong, diverse leadership team, and to communicate clearly in a wide variety of settings. Those, those four things really are, in my perspective, the heart of the matter. When you think about the impactful practices that we talk about in the book, creating a healthy team environment, inspiring a bold vision, which I hope we get to spend more time on that one today, um, embracing authenticity, committing to the work of an inclusive leader, those all sit in this heart of listening, connecting the dots, building a strong, broad team, and I think often one of the greatest challenges is how do you communicate clearly in a wide variety of settings? What you've just described, as you said, it, on some level, 
we all know this, at least in theory, and yet why, it's so difficult. Why, why is it so hard to put these lessons into practice? So I think a couple of things. One is that um, the rate of change that comes at us um, as individuals and as organizations, it's sometimes easy to lose focus on um, the fundamentals. You get so caught up in the, in the swirl or the drama or the topic of the moment that focusing on those fundamentals is critical. I also think that this idea of, you know, we, we've talked so much in the last few years about being um, lifelong learning and a student for life and learning be, being the most important thing. Those things that I talked about, which seem really straight, you could view as really straightforward, I think they really require investment. And I'll just pick on communi the communication theme for a moment. And I continue as, as a leader with now 30 years of experience under my belt. I absolutely know that I have to keep working on my writing skills, my communication skills in a wide variety of settings. And I, it's not anything that I take for granted when I think about how to lead um, inclusively. I've learned so much over the last sets of years in and around the things you have to do well to be an inclusive leader. So I think some of it is that we get caught up in the drama of the moment, Michael, and some of it is that um, you really have to keep focusing on the basics and the fundamentals um, to, to do them really well. So there's this notion of execution. So we have, so would it be correct to say then that what you're describing in the book is kind of the a set of theories, less not theories so much as as practical lessons that you've learned. But but then the question is, how does one execute against that in a very practical way? Because that's where the results will happen. So what we've tried to assemble is a set of um, stories. Because stories, I like to tell stories, and I like to hear other people's stories. So stories that people can that 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 might resonate. But then lots of tools, methods, lists. I'm a list person and I like lists of sort of very practical things that people can use to help them get better at each of these practices. You, you gave me a really good bridge to something I think is really important and that my co-author Lynn says a lot is that you don't just arrive once and thrive in, in the, your moment of arrival over the course of, the, of, of your career. I can think about dozens of moments where I felt that I'd arrived I had to really invest in how I thrived. And then I got the opportunity to move on and do something else, which was yet another opportunity um, and moment to have arrived again and to continue working on how I would thrive um, in the environment that I found myself in. So you make this very clear distinction between the between the arriving, which is the all the activities, everything that's required, your education, practical experience to get into a position. You did make that distinct from what do we have to do to succeed over a longer period of time, in other words, to thrive. You've used that term several times, and it's in the title of your book. I think I probably glossed over this, but I do feel like there's so much talked about and written about about how to get there. And, and some of the things that we talk about in thriving are also relevant to getting there. But this idea that you take a step back and think, okay, what do I need to do to be successful once I'm there is, is sort of the heart of the matter of what we feel that women were really craving conversation in and around in a very practical, very grounded, um, lived experience manner. 
One of the things that I think uh, challenges many people is the the balancing of resource allocations, of conflicting priorities, of different pulls and agendas. How, how do you manage that in such a complex organization as Deloitte? I grew up as a consultant and I would help my clients um, lead very large, very complex transformations. And um, so I had experience in helping my clients think about how they made trade-off decisions, both at the macro level um, and then also in the moment. And I was able to take that learned experience um, to my role as leading Zoli Consulting as the CEO of that business for a number of years. But I actually want to bring us um, to where I am in the here and now in serving um, as the chair of Deloitte. When the CEO and I took our roles, we took them contemporaneously. Um, We thought that what our organization really needed was was a grounding set of priorities um, that would help us um, architect the decisions that we were making, both at the macro, most strategic level every day, and that leaders throughout the organization. And as a partnership, there's there's decisions that are made each and every day all throughout the organization um, that they would... um, could use as a framework. And so we came up with a concept of a shared agenda. And those words seem really simple and, and, and intuitive, but it was really powerful for our organization. And the idea, it was a set of shared um, agenda topics that were co-owned by the partners, by our leaders in the business, by the management team and the board. And that has given us an incredible frame that when we're in the moment, and obviously a lot has come at all of us over the last sets of years that certainly wasn't planned or expected for. The level of unknowns is unprecedented. But this shared agenda and this concept of a really us all owning the shared agenda really helped in the, the, the millions of trade-off decisions that we have to make every day in the details, as well as the big, large strategic decisions. Um, it's withstood the test of time through the we we stepped into our roles um, in June of 2019, and certainly have had plenty of things come at us. Um, I would say we refined the language a little bit, but the construct has really um, has really stayed um, strong and critical. So that shared agenda then helps everyone through the organization make decisions based on the the values, the priorities, the strategic business goals of Deloitte. Exactly. It gives a common language um, and a common understanding that's certainly below you know, what you think of as you know, the, the, the credo or mission or vision that you'd see printed on the door of an organization or on a website, but took it down a level to make it a, a bit more actionable in the moment to exactly your point on how you'd make the tough decisions um, in and around in and around everything from investments to priorities um, to focus to management focus and attention. One of the concepts that you describe in your book is called inspiring a bold vision. And it seems like this is very much related to this shared uh, agenda idea that you were just describing. To be the type of leader that inspires a bold vision, means that you need to be the person that wakes up in the morning with the brilliant new idea that no one has ever thought of before that that, that came to you in the middle of the night. Um, and that's what it took to be a visionary leader. And that was really intimidating to me personally. And I, I, and I actually think held me back 
And what I've come to appreciate and really understand is that um, though there are certainly people that wake up with the brilliant idea in the morning or in the middle of the night, um, and that is one way to create a bold vision, that vision can also come from listening really carefully to others and helping connect the dots. We talked about connect the dots earlier. And it begins with noticing what others overlook and then being able to formulate um, formulate and a narrative of that overlooked topic or under underappreciated topic, driving a plan and a set of language that inspires others to be excited about it, that drives to a great outcome for the organization. If I could just share a quick personal story, um, I grew up at the intersection of Wall Street and technology. Um, and I was as back office, a back office person um, as you could be. Um, and that, that, that was my world. That was my universe. And I had the privilege to, um, to lead Deloitte's technology organization, which had a much broader footprint um, than, than the business that I'd been a part of. And one, actually a couple of my partners, I can actually remember exactly where I was sitting, um, came in and started talking to me. Um, and this was over a decade ago now, started talking about um, iPhones and how they believed that our personal technology could be used to um, transform enterprises, could be used in government, could be used in business to create a very different everything from customer experience to, um, to much more effective and engaged processes. And I'll tell you, as someone who is a Wall Street back office person, that was so far away from my understanding of the universe. And the long story short, I listened and I listened and I listened. Um, and I started really trying to change, shift my own frame of reference because in the first conversation, I was like, really this in the business environment? I just couldn't see it. And I ended up flying to, I live in Chicago. I flew to Seattle to have some conversations with an organization that we were talking about acquiring that was the foundation of Deloitte Digital, which is such a marquee business for us um, and has become really a, um, an enormous part of our um, impact in the market, which came from me not being the person with the idea for Deloitte Digital. Couldn't be further from the truth, um, but I was able to process and understand and listen and connect the dots in and around it. So um, thank you for indulging my little sort of personal story and some of the journey I've been on around um, around how do you take someone who is a good listener, a good dot connector, um, a good communicator, and use that to help drive a really powerful vision forward for an organization. What you've just described is very inspiring because, of course, you're right. We tend to think of vision as this kind of flash of lightning in the middle of the night. But you have just described something that is much more scalable. We can make systematic we can be more inclusive and get more people involved. And it's accessible to us, to mere mortals who are not the geniuses that get the flash of inspiration. One thing I didn't mention that I think is important is formulating the narrative of the vision, I think is something that also trips people up quite a bit, is how do you, if you are listening really well and you figure out what the white space is and the idea is, how do you actually create the narrative that will resonate with the myriad of stakeholders that you have to convince 
um, that you want to go do something like buy a company that is developing um, enterprise applications for an iPhone. And, you know, those people might look, walk and talk differently than your traditional Deloitte consultant. You know, the first time I walked in, you know, in my full Wall Street garb um, was a big shift. And so this idea of how you formulate the narrative and really spending time to formulate the narrative around strategy, I wouldn't underemphasize that in the conversation either. We have some questions from LinkedIn. Maybe we should jump there. We'll take a few questions from LinkedIn. So this is from Malu Septian Milan, and she says, can you please talk about the impact of positive emotions to help us lead into a thriving state rather than survival? So the impact of positive emotions. When I started my business career, um, authenticity was not a topic that was in the conversation at all. Um, there was sort of an expectation of, of how one showed up in the workplace environment. Um, and that certainly could be in a very positive way. But I believe to be the most positive you can be, you need to be, um, you need to be your quote unquote authentic self, which is a term that's maybe slightly overused uh, right now, but I think is, is so important to this conversation, is this idea that I can show up in my own skin um, with a consistent set of values and a consistent um, energy level, if you're not trying to be someone that you are not and that you are not comfortable and confident in, I believe that radiates positivity. And I can't tell you how thrilled I am that the business environment is shifting so that authenticity is something that we're talking about, because I think it actually gets to the absolute root of the question, which is positive being able to bring your entire self into the conversation generates positive energy, which then it, it's infectious. And a lot of what we talk about when we talk about thriving is infectious energy. And I'm definitely a believer that the more people thrive, women in particular, and maybe I have a bias there, the more, the more positive energy that creates and the more thriving that creates. And it has this flywheel effect to that end. So I love the idea of, um, and I definitely have to think about how to um, tie that into how I'm talking about the book. So I very much appreciate the question, but being authentic allows us to be positive, which generates such incredible energy um, that just drives better, better results and better outcomes for yourself, your teams, and your organizations. That positive, infectious energy seems to be a byproduct, it's one byproduct of really being authentic. Is that, is that another way, is that an accurate way of saying it? Absolutely is. But I want to actually bridge to talk about one other dimension of positivity, if I could, Michael, because I, I think it's important to this conversation. Um, I have spent, I was not a studier of leadership early in my career. I um, sort of absorbed as I went and running a million miles an hour, but I have spent some time over the last few years really trying to think about and articulate crispy, crisply leadership. And one of the things I've started thinking a lot about and talking a lot about is around intent. And one of the things that I spend time with my own teams on, as well as in broader conversations like this, is talking about a core part of my philosophy is around assuming and expecting positive intent. 
And I really try to live by this idea in every interaction that I can, both personally and professionally, and maybe not professionally when it, you know it's with um, the most intense competitor, though in, in today's day and age, um, your most intense competitor um, can be your, your partner the next day. But this idea of positive intent, I think, is also important. So we talked about positivity as it creates energy for authenticity. But I also think that positive intent and expecting and bringing to your collaborations, to your teammates, um, this idea of positive intention that you're both giving it and accepting it is also a really important part of being a strong leader. You know, it's funny you say that because not too long ago on this show, we had as a guest uh, Scott O'Neill, who is the chief executive of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, which owns the Philadelphia 76ers, among other yes. teams. And he really talks about this assume positive intent, exactly the same message. So it's really, it's interesting to see the similarity. I won't bore you with the backstory of how I learned the phrase, which is an entertaining story, maybe over a, um, a coffee one day. I did add and expect, because I do think assuming positive intent is incredibly important for me as I really try to process that. Also that you expect those that you're interfacing with to come with positive intent creates a very different, a very different kind of dynamic in conversation. And when I find that when I veer from that, um, I, that, that I always have to sort of challenge myself and check myself to that end. And we have a question from Elizabeth Shaw on Twitter, and she says, you were talking about bold vision before. How can someone develop the courage to lead and to build and to implement that bold vision? I courage is not something I thought about a lot um, over many years. And um, I had the great privilege um, to work for a leader who um, really pushed my thinking in and around courage. And, and she and I worked on this idea of, of courageous conversation and generating a culture of courage. And I want to go back to this idea of courageous conversations because I actually think that's what sits at the heart of the matter in the business community and the business environment. Courageous conversations are absolutely need energy planning and intention and encouragement for others to join. So just if you start with that frame of courageous conversation, we actually outline a few things um, in the book um, in and around courage, especially when it relates to strategy. And let me just tick through a couple of them. Um, so the first, and, and this, I'm actually impressed we've gotten this part of the conversation without talking about this, is have the courage to acknowledge when you don't know and the courage to ask for help. And that has been a really big learning um, for me over the years and something that I think is absolutely critical when you think about um, being courageous because the topics that we're dealing with are way too complicated and way too sophisticated for any of us to face them alone. If you're facing conflict, ask yourself before acting, is this really important? Is this really the right time? So choose your battles would be the, would be the tagline. Um, that, that we use to that end. Something that I continue to work on to this day is identifying your emotional triggers and what's the story behind how you're feeling um, is something that I think is a really good 
best practice. And maybe I'll just close with, um, with maybe the piece of advice I think is the most important in this idea that success begets success is I would encourage everyone to thank someone for being courageous today. Thanking for someone for being courageous actually has two incredibly good effects. One is they feel great about it. And the second is it reminds you and gives you the courage to be courageous yourself. So those are a few of the things um, that I found to be really valuable. Um, and, uh, and I think, and I, and I hope can be helpful um, to each of you. Your book also talks about meditation, which kind of surprised me. And I'll just mention, I've been meditating for the last 30 years, 40 years, and not well. But I was so I was very surprised to see that in your book. In full transparency, and because you know it is possible that people that know me well are listening and will hold me to the universal truth. Um, I will tell I will start with the end in mind, which I will tell you that that is not a strength of mine either, Michael. Um, but this book is a collaboration. And uh, Susan Brady has really pushed my thinking in a really big way in investing in your best self. And I, it's actually something I deeply believe in. I tended to talk about over the years, focusing on the things that give you energy. That's how I would talk about investing in your best self. But Susan really pushed my thinking in our collaboration here. And the way she pushed my thinking the most was that giving yourself space and time is not a waste of time. And women in particular, I think we're so wired to be one foot in front of the other and go, go, go and a million things that this idea of giving yourself the space in whatever it is that gives you energy, um, including, including if that is meditating to, to, to focus on that, what the positive energy that can come from that and not viewing that as something that is not a good use of your time. Um, this is still on my work in progress list, Michael. And my 20-something daughter, um, what she wanted for her 21st birthday was um, to be certified as a yoga instructor. And that is um, a much more complicated endeavor than I understood, an expensive endeavor than I understood. Um, and so she has been, over the last sets of years, trying to encourage me to be um, to be better at creating that space, but I'm still very much a work in progress. We have some interesting questions now coming up on both Twitter and LinkedIn, and there, there's a theme that's now developing. And let me go to Mustafa Radwan, and he says the following, thanks for the great insights and looking forward to reading the book. And here's his, here are his questions. How can we do more to, number one, attract more women into technology, number two, provide them with equal pay for equal work? A big part of my agenda and what I'm focused on is how do we create absolutely more space and um, an opportunity. Um, and we've actually been talking about courage and courage for women um, to be in the STEM fields and in technology. Um, I will tell you that after spending a lot of time on this over the years, we've made some progress, but not nearly enough if you just use CIOs. As, as the benchmark, um, we've actually made meaningful progress in women's CIOs over the last couple of years, but there's also incredible turnover in the CIO ranks. So I think we have there's a lot to do, and we could spend a whole other hour just on this topic, Michael. Um, but the first, and, and where I'm spending a lot of my energy is in our education system, in junior high school and high school girls. And we know that attention and energy spent there 
So if there is a way to get involved in your community high school, um, there are so many fabulous programs from Girls Who Code to She Can STEM to Black Girls Code. There are fabulous programs. So if that is something that interests you in terms of how you engage in the community, I do believe it starts there and through early college. For anyone who's listening who spends time in and around technology, because one of the things that's happening is that even women who start their careers in technology often end up opting out. And a lot of that is about where their first few assignments are. And what, what studies have found, and we've done studies to this end as well, it is often that the woman on the team will end up in the project manager. The, the project management role or the softer, quote unquote, softer sides of technology roles. And it actually deals directly with your compensation question as well. We need to make sure that women who have the energy and aptitude and education are given the space to be in the hardcore technology roles um, that evolve in each of our organizations. So thanks for letting me do a quick commercial on another topic that I have a lot of passion around. We also had a guest on this show, Tarika Barrett, who is the CEO of Girls Who Code, who really emphasized the, the pipeline of girls who then can evolve into uh, women leaders later on, very much as you just described. And it really is too. It is the pipeline. And it is when, when women arrive in your organization, help make sure they're getting the sponsorship, mentorship, and roles to allow them to be wildly successful in the technology domains. And we have another question from, this is from Arsalan Khan, who says, uh, what do you think is the role of politics when considering or not considering women in leadership positions? I think that's a very kind of provocative topic. Maybe I would say two things to that question. Um, the first is I'm a deep believer that you can probably tell from this conversation so far that um, advancing women um, actually creates more opportunities, not less. And so I think changing the narrative that th this is a, there's sort of a finite, there's a finite number of, of roles collectively. And that if a woman gets a role, that means that a man to be super blunt um, won't get it. I think we have to change our mind, move ourselves to a mindset of abundance and that more diverse leadership teams creates more opportunities. So that's the first thing I would say. But the second thing I wanna talk about is sponsorship. Uh, we've talked for decades about mentorship and mentorship is incredibly important. But Michael, if you're mentoring me, that means you're sharing your ideas with me and I'm learning what I can from conversation and communication. Incredibly important. But sponsorship is about using your political capital to help somebody else. And so I think to fundamentally change actually women's ability to both arrive and thrive, we collectively have to get comfortable and confident in sponsoring people who don't look, walk, and talk like us um, and come from different pedigrees and different backgrounds. And so I believe that the political dimension is most important around courage, back to that word, to use political capital to help others. Um, and, and that applies in so many situations. It applies in men helping women. It applies in um, across race. It applies, applies across pedigree. Um, when you think about um, our, you know, the university systems in our country and the broad sets of places that people come from, thinking about how you sponsor people that don't come from the same exact walk of life than, than you do, 
that's where I think political capital is of such incredibly high value. And I do absolutely believe that people that use that political capital for good, that it serves them well. Um, I've seen it happen time and time and time again. We have a question from LinkedIn, and this is from Malu Septian Milan, who uh, I think on this topic, she says the following, how can we get more Latina women on boards when the last study showed that board of direct boards of directors believe that there is a shortage of talent, which is not the case per the Latino Corporate Director Association? How do we break this kind of general bias? And let me just add that as I've spoke with other uh, women leaders on this show, this question has come up a lot just in general to hiring uh, hiring women, hiring diverse teams. There's a sense that there's not the talent, but in reality, the talent is out there. The myth that we have to bust is the pipeline myth. And that applies to Latina women. Um, and I spend a lot of time with, with HACER, the amazing organization that focuses on, on the Latina and Latinx community um, with the Black Corporate Directors Conference focused on the Black community, um, with the Send Pinnacle focused on the, the, the Asian community. There is no doubt that there is really good momentum, but not enough to change the conversation in and around the pipeline. I get great optimism from the diversification of the expectations for the roles that board members have to have been in. Historically, if you were not a sitting CEO, a just past CEO, or a CFO, it was really hard to land onto a board. And we've talked a lot about the broad sets of issues that organizations are facing today. I do believe that's going to create a tremendous amount more opportunity for people with marketing backgrounds and HR backgrounds um, and academic backgrounds to land in the boardroom. The work that the associations are doing to de debunk the myths of pipeline are incredibly important. The partnering with search organizations to really help make sure that we've got really good, talented pools for um, nomgov committees to draw from when they are looking for when they are looking for directors. There's a lot of work to do. I feel good about the foundation that's been set. And maybe the last thing I'll say here is. Anytime anyone who's listening to this conversation hears someone say there's a pipeline issue or that doesn't exist, I would encourage you to reach out to the various resource organizations that exist um, because that is a myth we absolutely need to bust. What advice do you have for women so that they can thrive in these positions? You don't have to do it alone and you're not in it alone. You don't have to do it alone. Ask for help. There's absolutely such an incredible groundswell of wanting to help women be successful. The courage to ask for that help is absolutely yours for the asking, or that help is yours for the asking, and all you need is the courage. And the second, and even maybe more important, is that you're not in it alone. This book was actually written to, to share our lived experiences that there are um, so many of us who, through lots of twists and turns and experiences that we've all had, that, that we're in it together, and we're here to help each other be wildly successful, and that success creates success for everybody. So you don't have to do it alone, and you're not in it alone, Michael. Those are my, 
Those are my sort of parting words um, to the women listening and to the men listening. Be a voice, be an ally, and help women know that they're not in it alone as well. Janet, can you just share with us as we finish up advice for companies, for organizations to support women and support diverse teams? We've been on such an important journey over the last 20 years in and around, or or more now actually, around diversity and then diversity and inclusion. I actually think that we've learned actually over the last couple of years that equity is actually the heart of the matter. And if we don't have workplaces that recognize and value equity and everything that goes into an equitable work environment, that we're not going to move the needle on diversity and inclusion. And that's those are, those are big words. Um, the work that my organization is doing and so many of our clients and organizations are doing is taking a step back and looking at every dimension of their business, um, both around talent, around their products, and in the marketplace to say, is this equitable or is there, um, are there are there things in our system that we might not recognize um, that don't create an equitable environment for everyone to bring their best selves to work and deliver great outcome and results for our organization? And we have one final question under the wire here, just as we finish up. And this is from Arsalan Khan, who says, as a society, how can we move away from being so patriarchal and, and how do we measure progress. I think I think he's really asking the broader social dynamic about the broader social dynamic. I think it is up to both our constructs both in business and government and for each of us to actually have a lens of equity in so in, in our interactions. That has changed my thinking significantly about my own organization, which has been a leading organization on this topic to think about that. So I would challenge you to really think about, um, think about in your own world and in your, um, and in your broader communities, whether you're really using the lens of equity in how you make decisions and how you um, raise important and courageous conversations. Okay. And with that, we're out of time. We've been talking with Janet Fauti. She is the executive chair of Deloitte. Janet, do you have a copy of your book you can just hold up for us briefly? Here it is. You know, as a lifetime consultant and executive, this is not in my normal, in my normal motions, but I do have a copy. So this is, this is the book um, that is coming out um, as we speak. And thank you so much, Michael, for giving me the opportunity to talk about the book and to share some of my thoughts and perspectives on leadership with your listeners. Jenna, thank you so much. Everybody, thank you for watching, especially those folks who ask such great questions. Now, before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our newsletter and keep you up to date on upcoming shows. Check out CXOTalk.com and we will see you again next week. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.